Good morning, everyone. Our scripture for the day is going to be Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 48. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statements be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? But if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Father, as we approach your word now, the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, may our hearts be pricked by the truth, the life-changing, turn us upside down, that we might be right side up type of truth. Lord, may we see what's at the heart of the law. May we see where we stand in relation to it. And may we see and feel afresh this morning why it is good news. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. In the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus turning the world on its head. He tells us that so much of the way we naturally thought the world worked, so much of what we naturally assumed about the world is just plain wrong. We got it wrong. We thought it was the rich who were blessed, but it's actually the poor. We thought it was the powerful who would inherit the earth, but it's actually the gentle. We thought it was the popular who were blessed, but it's actually the persecuted. So much of how we naturally thought the world worked is backwards. It's the opposite of what we thought it would be. Our perspective on life is upside down. It's as though we've all been born standing on our heads, seeing the world upside down. And now for the first time in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes to us as the first man we've met who is right side up. And he's turning us right side up to see the world as it really is, to see the world as God sees it. 
In Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 48, there are a lot of perspective-changing truths to see and for us to process this morning. And some of them won't be easy. They won't be easy for us. In fact, some are likely to feel impossible at first. But perhaps that's exactly what you should have expected, right? It's, you, it should be this way. If Jesus really is turning us right side up, we should expect the world to look and feel radically different now from what it did before we encountered him. When we lived life upside down, running a 100-meter dash was impossible as long as we were still standing on our hands. It felt impossible. It was impossible. But now... Jesus has turned us over. He set us on our feet, empowering us to do what was previously beyond our ability. Standing right side up, not only is the way we see the world new now, but the way we act in this world is also new. If you've got your handout, I hope you do, the handout. I try to visualize this shift that's happening for you. The, sh- the shift in the way we perceive the world begins with the perceived standard. This is what you've heard. This is what you thought God's standard was. This is the way you assumed you could earn God's stamp of approval upon your life. Last week, we saw two of these perceived standards. We looked at do not commit murder and do not commit adultery. This week, we're going to see four <laughs> Of them, Jesus says, You've heard these four things. You've heard divorce in a just way, keep your oaths, an eye for an eye, and love your neighbor, but also hate your enemy. Each of these perceived standards are an expression of justice in some way. What is justice, you may ask? You could ask many a professional judge today, and they may not be able to give you a straight answer. What is justice? Justice, very simply, is giving to each his due. Giving to each his or her due. So, in divorce, give what is due. Divorce in a just way. When you make promises, keep your promises. That's just. An eye for an eye. That's just. It's not a disproportionate response. It's a just response. Give a neighbor the love they're due, but also give an enemy the hate they're due. But as we saw with murder and adultery, the perceived standard is not the real standard. It's not the true standard in God's eyes. Real justice runs much deeper than we think. We saw last Sunday that it's not only the outward act of murder for which God's justice demands punishment, but also the anger that's in us, the anger that's in our hearts, from which murder and character assassination, name-calling, it's all just the outward symptoms of what's going on in the heart. We saw last week also, it's not only the outward act of adultery that offends justice, but also lustful thoughts, selfish desires, from which adultery is just the final outward expression. Jesus goes deeper than the outward actions, 
that are generally recognized as being bad. He goes deeper and pinpoints the heart attitudes which produce those actions. You can see that happening on the handout, hopefully. Uh, Jesus is revealing, he's talked about the perceived standards, now he's revealing God's true standard, which is not less than what you thought, it's actually more than you thought. Jesus isn't making the law easier to keep, loosening it up. He's making it harder by revealing what's at the heart of the law. But in revealing God's true standard, Jesus doesn't leave us completely to ourselves to figure out how to put it all together and put it into practice. He gives us the practical outworking of these things. You see that next on the handout? That's the third image, the hands, the practical outworking. If this is the heart of God's true standard, then here's the hands. Here is what you should do about it. Here is our proper response. So in all these things, Jesus moves us through what we've heard to the heart of the matter, the heart of the law, to the hands, what you should be doing, and lastly, the head. Here are the propelling truths which motivate our proper response to the true standard. If all the parts that came before here are like the parts of an assembly line for a car, then the last bit would be the engine. This is the thing that makes us go. The propelling truth is the motivation we need to joyfully obey Jesus and what he says. It's like the fuel for our obedience. It's, it's like the engine for the car. So here's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna walk through those first three categories for each of the issues Jesus addresses, but I'm gonna save the last category, the propelling truth, the engine entirely for the end. Partially for dramatic effect, but also because that's how Jesus himself does it, presents it in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's take these things in the order they come, seeing the perceived standard and then the true standard and then it's practical outworking. And then at the very end, we'll see the propelling truth that stands behind all of them. First, let's see a topic that can be very emotionally charged and rightly so. Divorce. Look with me, verse 31 again. Jesus says, It was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament there. Let him give her a certificate of divorce. I've summarized this standard on your handout as divorce in a just way, in a proper way. We can probably all imagine the unjust divorce practices of the ancient world. A wife displeases her husband and he just throws her out on the street. No, there's no recourse. She can't find a better husband because she's still legally married. And the end result is she's destitute. So clearly this is more just, a more just way to divorce. A man must give her a certificate of divorce so that she doesn't have to be destitute. She's free. She's free to remarry because she, she has the certificate of divorce. Giving that may satisfy the general public and the courts, even in our day. And it may be fairer than other alternatives, but does it really satisfy justice? God's justice. 
Jesus' answer is no. No. And those who've experienced the pain of divorce instinctively know that Jesus is right. The world knows it, even if we can't admit it, that marriage is more than a temporary legal arrangement of convenience to be entered into and exited as we find it personally fulfilling. We innately and rightly feel that it is much more. Marriage is the personal, legal, economic, and physical union brought about when a man and a woman enter into a covenant together, a covenant of love together. Such covenants are meant to last, Jesus says. We know they are. That's the true standard. Look at the handout again. Covenants of love are meant to last. A certificate of divorce or some words mumbled over you by a judge ought not undo what was meant to endure. That's why Jesus includes what he says in verse 32. Look at verse 32. He says, but I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And everyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The reason victims are created in divorce and adultery happens post-divorce is because covenants of love are not meant to be broken. Jesus implies that the covenant in, in some way is still there. It's still in effect in some sense. And that's why the talk about adultery. Now, Jesus does give an exception. And I don't think this is the only exception in the Bible. He does give an exception. And we can talk more about this during our Wednesday night sermon application time or after the service if you want. But for now, keep in mind Jesus' new and true standard. Covenants of love are meant to last because we will come back in the end and see why. But before we do, there's more perspective-changing statements to see. Look at verse 33. Verse 33 says, And again, you have heard, the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Now that seems just, right? Keep your oaths. Keep your promises. In a day before written legal contracts were the norm, this is how this would work. I want to borrow your donkey. And I say, surely as the Lord lives, I will return your donkey to you. I swear by the temple in Jerusalem that your donkey will be here at sunset. You have my promise. And if I don't return it, may the Lord's swift judgment find me. Okay, that's, that's your legal contract right there. And of course, yes, you should keep your oaths. But Jesus warns us here, don't swear oaths at all. Look at verse 34. It says, but I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, I've, I've summarized Jesus' true standard on your handout as promise according to your ability promise according to your ability because verse 36 highlights our ability and what is it it's not much you can't make one hair white or black you're unable however strong or determined you may be to keep one single hair on your head from turning 
white. And if it's that way with the smallest part of your body, you ought not swear oaths at all, Jesus says. James, not my James, but James in the Bible says this. He says, James chapter 4 verse 13 says, Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, do business, and make money, make a profit. James says, why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast and brag. And all such boasting is arrogant. It's evil. If we act arrogantly when we say, we'll move to this place and do this or that thing, how much greater is our arrogance when we swear it? When we guarantee it? When we take an oath? When we make a promise that we will surely do something? To avoid the evil of arrogance, Swear oaths only according to your ability, which Jesus tells us is vastly less than we think. Here's the practical outworking, verse 37. Jesus says, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is evil. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Don't add an oath. To it. Don't add an oath to your yes or no. Don't make a solemn promise, cross my heart, and hope to die. Don't do that. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. In doing this, we recognize our own inability and our complete dependence upon God on the one hand. And on the other hand, something good happens. We become part of a new community that Jesus is creating where we don't need to add oaths and promises to our statements. We are to be simple truth speakers. Let our yes be yes, let our no be no. And there's something so refreshing about that, isn't there? Christians ought to be people who recognize their limits, the limits of their abilities, and because of that, their simple statements of yes and no carry more weight than others who stack promises on top of promises saying they will do something. I think all of us would much prefer to live in that one community instead of the other, if only for the sake of brevity. Just let your yes be yes. Now, we will all struggle, I think, at many points with the things Jesus is doing here, what he's saying. He's turning the world on its head. He's turning things upside down. But here is where it starts getting really difficult for me. Look at verse 38. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is the perceived standard, an eye for an eye. Now, that just seems just, doesn't it? Everyone gets what they're due. And it's even proportional justice. It's not you insult me off with your head. It's an equal penalty to the offense. From a human perspective on justice, that just seems right and fair. But now, here comes Jesus, revealing God's perspective on how to respond to personal injustices. And it's not with vengeance. It's not an attempt to rebalance the scales on your own. 
He took this from me, so I'm going to take this from him. Jesus says the true standard, the gospel standard, involves responding to unjust things with gracious generosity. Here's the practical outworking, verse 39. It says, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. In turning us right side up, Jesus is creating a new community, one that will give and go the extra mile when encountering personal injustice. This is hard, though. This is hard. This is hard because it runs so contrary to our natural response. Our default wiring is to want revenge when someone wrongs us, right? Someone hurts me, I want to hurt them back. I want revenge. I want to do the bare minimum when I feel mistreated at work. I want that unjust boss to taste his own medicine and I will rejoice if I live to see it, if I'm there to see it. That's, that's the way we are. Jesus, however, turns all this on its head. And remember, I'm saving how he does this for the very end. We're almost there. Just one more big thing. And if you, like me, felt like the last thing was hard, this is where it feels like what Jesus is saying is impossible. It can feel like being asked to sprint 100 yards while standing on your hands. Look with me, verse 43. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The perceived standard, love your neighbor, hate your enemies, it's not the real standard. Hatred feels like what they're, what they're due, but the true standard is the exact opposite. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Here is where I feel what Jesus says is impossible. It's hard enough to do the just thing and love my neighbor. That's pretty hard. It feels superhuman to love my enemy, the person who hurts me, the person who hates me, to love the boss who has it out for me, to love the bully at school who tries to make your life miserable, to love the coworker who stabbed you in the back, to love the person from your past who assaulted you or assaulted your character, to love the indoctrinated jihadi who would behead you as an infidel if he could. How do you bring yourself to pray for them, to desire their good, to love them? It feels impossible on the surface. And it is impossible until your heart is won by a truth a truth that propels your feet toward an otherwise impossible to reach destination. It's impossible until Jesus turns you right side up and strengthens your legs with new desires. And that's exactly what he does in verses 44 through 47. Look again at that. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you 
Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Jesus, as he closes out this section, we come into contact with this last circle, the circle of the propelling truth, the motivation, the motivation that changes our hearts to fall in line with the true standard. Here's the gospel engine that powers the car that Jesus is refurbishing in us. What can possibly motivate love to our enemies, us to love our enemies? Jesus tells us, you will be like God when you love your enemies. You will be like God. You will be like children marked by a resemblance to your Father who is in heaven. God does good to his sworn enemies. He causes the sun to shine on them, on the evil and the good. He causes the rain to fall on the crops of the righteous and the unrighteous. You behave just like everyone else when you love only those who love you. Everyone does that. You behave just like everyone else when you welcome only those who welcome you back. But you reflect your heavenly Father when you love your enemies, when you pray and work for the good of those who hate you. Because that's what God does. As a matter of fact, each of these things we've looked at as the true standard, they're all about mirroring God in the world, reflecting his character. They're all about being like him. Why refuse to break your marriage vows? Because you're to be like God, who keeps his covenant of love forever. Why not swear oaths? Because you are to be truth speakers, like God, who promises according to his ability. Why respond to personal injustices with gracious generosity? Because you're to be like God, who shows grace and generosity to those who offend him. This is a central theme of the entire chapter. You are to mirror God. You are to reflect his character. You are to be like your father. Jesus even says in verse 48, therefore you are to be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus requires us to abandon the perceived standard we've had in the past to embrace this true and perfect one. You are to be like God. But I'll say to you, it's still impossible. Even with that motivation, it's still impossible. It's not enough for me just to hear, be like God. Be like God, KJ. Do, do this, be like God. My heart needs something more than that. But that's exactly what I get in the gospel. In the gospel, Jesus makes all these things that are true of God personally true for me. By making me a participant in this story, by making my heart believe that all this has really happened 
to me. So the motivation becomes much more than reflect God, KJ, but instead, KJ, reflect what God has personally done for you. Reflect what God has personally done for you in the gospel. Through faith, I'm now part of a story in which God did all these things for me. And believing that should change my heart. The gospel now comes to me as very personal good news. Like this, Jesus gave his life on a cross to seal a covenant of love with me. The mountains may shake and the hills be removed, but his loving kindness will not be shaken from me. His covenant of peace will not be removed from me. Jesus came from heaven to earth as a bridegroom pursuing dirty, vile, adulterous at heart me. Believing in his covenant faithfulness toward me should motivate me toward covenant faithfulness with my spouse. So that at the end of the day, it's not my fickle desires which motivate my faithfulness, but Jesus' faithfulness to me motivates my faithfulness. And this works, works the same for all these things. In, in the gospel, I learned that Jesus is God's yes and amen to all the promises of God to me. His faithfulness to me now motivates my faithfulness to others. In the gospel, I learned that God responded to my evil and offenses with grace and generosity. I said with my life, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your ways. That's what I said. But instead of giving me what I deserve, God put the punishment I deserve upon his son, upon Jesus. Instead of giving me what I deserve, he took it. While I was God's enemy, he loved me and gave his son to satisfy justice in my place. Whether you're hearing the Sermon on the Mount this morning for the very first time or for the 100th time, the application is still the same. You've just encountered God's true standard. And hopefully you've realized afresh, I haven't kept it. I haven't kept it. I've broken it. You hear Jesus say, you must be perfect, even as your heavenly father is perfect. And you throw up your hand saying, how? That, that's not me. I'm guilty. You've realized you've fallen hopelessly short of God's glorious standard. But guess what, church? That's exactly where Jesus wants you to be. Having no hope in your own performance. It's when we despair of building up our own goodness before God, of being our own saviors, that we finally have reached the place where we can receive his goodness, where we can embrace Christ's righteousness, where we can have him as our savior. Jesus offers us all his perfect performance this morning. His perfect covenant keeping. You may have broken your covenants, but Jesus has kept them for you. His perfect truth speaking. You may have broken your promises, but Jesus has kept his promises for you. His perfect cheek turning in the face of evil, he offers it to you. His perfect love for enemies, namely you. He loved you when you were his enemy. If you'll take hold of Jesus by faith, 
by believing in him, all of this can be yours, accredited to your account. Picture it like this. Your bank account in life is running a big deficit. Your whole life is one big overdraw. But Jesus has wealth beyond imagination in his account. And in love, he takes on our deficits and pays our penalties on the cross. And in exchange, he offers the riches of his reward in a world without end to you. Jesus calls us all, those who were naturally his enemies, naturally indebted, lifelong offenders against God, to hand over our bankrupt accounts to him. And by faith, enter into a covenant of love and marriage that will never be broken. And as in marriage, we now have a joint account with Jesus so that Jesus owns all that is us, all that is ours, and we inherit all that is his. As we believe that today, for the very first time or for the 10,000th time, we gain in Jesus a covering over our shame, over all the ways we've broken the law, God's standards, over our past anger and adultery, over our broken promises and desires for revenge, over our hate of those who hurt us. And we gain the one thing that can really change us. We gain a gospel motivation that wins our hearts. That is like the engine in the car, the fuel in the tank, propelling us forward. Not only do we believe now that this is what God is like, but we believe that this is what he has done for us. He's done this for me. He's done this for you. While we were his enemies, he swore an oath of love over us. Jesus did us the greatest good imaginable by dying for our sins in our place. And he continues to respond to our daily offenses with daily displays of his gracious generosity. Let's believe that good news today. And in believing, let's be truly changed. Let's pray together. Father, as we've heard the words of our Christ, may they fall upon our hearts first with a big, oh no, I have broken, I've fallen, I've failed, but also with a great resounding, oh yes, but my King has conquered. He has obeyed perfectly. He has loved me while I was his enemy. And in believing ourselves to be the fortunate ones upon whom his grace has fallen, who have heard this good news, who have responded in faith, may we go out from here as changed people through believing in such a great and glorious Savior. Lord, I ask that uh, for most of us, that would be believing again today, responding to the word again in faith for the 10,000th time. But Lord, perhaps there's someone here for the very first time, hearing the words of Christ, seeing themselves right side up for the very first time. 
I pray that they would take one look at their failure, but then 10 looks at Christ and see how great and how good he is and embrace him as Savior and Lord. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.